Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The impeachment trial of Donald Trump may be winding down, but the assault by the U.S. on human rights here and abroad goes on unabated. Warfare in Bolivia, warfare in Venezuela, warfare against the black and brown community here at home, warfare against those south of the border. There is a racist white supremacist quality to all of this, and let's not be fooled, and let's not go down the road And we speak to Black Lives Matter DC about the case of a police officer arrested and charged with murder in the DC suburbs. As soon as this happened, they locked the black cop up. And it's not to say that he shouldn't be held accountable. It's that even in the system, the system still criminalizes black cops differently than it does white ones. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Dozens of Palestinians have been injured by rubber bullets and tear gas shot by Israeli troops while protesting Trump's so-called Middle East peace plan, which he announced on Tuesday at the White House with indicted Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at his side. Under the plan created by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, without any input from Palestinians, Israel would increase its control of the occupied West Bank. It would take total control of Jerusalem. Palestinians would be restricted to a few Bantustan-like colonies under the control of the Israeli military, and the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians ethnically cleansed from their country would lose their refugee status. Ariel Gold, co-director of Code Pink, led several rallies here protesting Netanyahu's visit and Trump's apartheid plan. Strangling people, massacring children is not peace. That is the opposite of peace. Nobody should accept permanent occupation, permanent second class status. Again, that was Ariel Gold of Code Pink protesting not far from where Trump's Middle East scam was announced this week. And now I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author of more than three dozen books, including The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. I think that we're talking for the first time in 2020, Gerald. And so I want to dive right in and first talk about how it is that the U.S. can just give Palestine to Israel as if the Palestinian people don't exist. Well, this is not the first time that this has happened. Recall in 1917, the so-called Balfour Declaration out of England, uh, whereby His Majesty's government basically declared that London would look favorably upon the creation of a Jewish state in historic Palestine, which was an outgrowth of the Zionist movement, which had only begun a few decades earlier, pioneered by Theodore Herzl, who took the point of view that 
the anti-Jewish fervor could not be eradicated and therefore there need to be a Jewish homeland. I was rather curious that it was London that spearheaded this effort since England had a long history of anti-Semitism itself going back to the 13th century when England expelled this Jewish population. This was followed in 1947-1948 by the one-sided partition of the United Nations basically giving a good deal of historic Palestine to the Zionist movement and to Jewish residents of that part of West Asia and also, of course, to arriving refugees. And this was then followed in 1967 by the so-called Six-Day War when Israel waged war against the Arab countries and basically gobbled up a good deal of what is now the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Clearly, the collapse of the socialist camp in the late 1980s helped to tip the scales further towards Israel. And today, we see that with this latest so-called Trump peace plan, that the scale is tipped even further. Although I must say that I do think that this Trump peace plan in some ways is a gift to Iran. It will help to solidify Iranian backing for the Palestinians and vice versa. It would also bring Iran closer to Turkey, which also has objected to this so-called Trump peace plan, and that may in turn help to bridge the so-called Shia-Sunni divide, that is to say the divide in Islam that has Shia Iran, or mostly Shia Iran on the one side, and mostly Sunni Turkey on the other. Uh, Turkey, of course, in many ways, is the power to watch. Uh, it has been shunned foolishly by the European Union in terms of admission of Turkey. And the European Union, by the way, now has to absorb the fact that Britain is leaving the EU, uh, which will weaken the European Union in the face of an ever stiffer challenge from the United States of America. Uh, recall that just a few days ago, the so-called E3, Britain, France, and Germany, were not able to stand up to the United States when it threatened all three nations with tariffs unless it chose to tighten the screws further on Iran, which they basically chose to do. I also think that the so-called Trump peace plan will put added pressure on those nations that seem to be going along with this plan, including the Saudis, including Egypt, Oman, and Bahrain, all of whom will pay a stiff price, but I'm afraid to say that at least in the short term, the stiffest price of all will be paid by the Palestinians. I'm wondering about the mechanics of all this and the role of international organizations. <laughs> you know, what is the role of the UN? You know, is there a role for the ICC? I think I sent you a piece about how last month an ICC judge, the same judge who was barred from being uh, admitted to the United States to investigate alleged U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, issued a statement saying that she found sufficient grounds for um, an investigation to proceed into Israeli war crimes against the Palestinian people. So is there just no role for the UN? Or are we just kind of just in the era of these rogue nations just ignoring the international bodies they set up to supposedly prevent another world war? Well, I understand the thrust of your sentiment. I mean, clearly, we're in a different era now, uh, although I do say that 
we have to pay close attention to what the ICC is doing because that may gain traction. On the other hand, uh, pay careful attention to the fact that after leaving Washington, Benjamin Netanyahu left immediately for Moscow. Israel has cultivated Russia. Mr. Netanyahu visits Russia on a regular basis. I have not seen any statements yet from the foreign ministry in Moscow, although I do not plan to read a statement that suggests that Russia is going along with this so-called Trump peace plan. I think it is fair to say that uh, you won't see Moscow take the same stiff position that it did against Israeli colonialism and Israeli aggression in the 1980s. You won't see a repeat of that, at least in the short term. Well, of course, another major international news story is the outbreak of the coronavirus in China, which has created uh, some rather shameful responses, actually, from Western corporate media and officials more intent on politicizing this public health crisis than dealing with it as a, you know, a public health crisis. So on Thursday, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross told Fox Business that the coronavirus is a golden chance for the U.S. to bring back manufacturing jobs lost to cheap Chinese labor over the decades. And he said, quote, I don't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease, but the fact it does give businesses yet another thing to consider when they go through their review of their supply chain, end quote. So this is the type of commentary coming out of the West about this public health crisis. So what are your thoughts? It's a clear reflection of this new Cold War, as evidenced by the fact that Secretary of State Michael Pompeo just announced in the last 24 hours that the Chinese Communist Party is the major threat to international peace and security. But what's even more striking about this hysteria being generated by the, what, the coronavirus or the Wuhan virus, to use the Chinese city that now has been uh, affixed to this virus, is that if you look at what's happening with the flu in the United States, by several orders of magnitude, to put it mildly, there have been more people dying of the flu in recent months that have died of this so-called coronavirus. Right. But what's even more remarkable is the unleashing of anti-Chinese sentiment, not only in the United States of America, as evidenced by the comment that you just cited, but even in majority Chinese uh, Singapore, for example, in Southeast Asia, in Toronto, in Seoul, in Tokyo, uh, there have been efforts to ban Chinese tourists and to rout Chinese people, which I basically see as an outgrowth of this new hysteria being ginned up against China, not least being ginned up on, in Washington. I should also say that pay close attention to the fact that before the coronavirus, China was dealing with another virus, the so-called African swine virus, where China had to kill a significant percentage of its pigs. Of course, pork is a major uh, food item in China. Recall as well, and I hope this is unconnected, that a few years ago, Cuba had to kill all of its, or a significant percentage of its pig population, uh, because of the same uh, African swine virus. And it turned out that this virus may have been introduced into Cuba uh, with malign purposes by a certain North American intelligence agency. 
this hysteria against China in some ways is a resuscitation of that old standby, and I'm speaking of the so-called yellow peril, uh, which arose about 120 years ago with the rise of Japan and took on new meaning as Japan began to rise to prominence in the first few decades of the 20th century. And with this new surge of the Chinese economy, it seems that this yellow peril virus, if I may, is gaining a new lease on life. Hmm. Well, finally, in Venezuela, there was what was called the first international encounter against imperialism for peace, sovereignty, and life recently. And that wrapped up in Caracas. Uh, The event welcomed 400 international representatives from more than 70 countries to mark 62 years since the fall of the dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez. And, and actually, the organizers said that 1,000 people were reportedly banned or blocked from getting there, trying, who, who are trying to get to this gathering by this U.S. blockade of the country. And that's something we probably don't know enough about, all the different machinations and, and ways that the U.S. is trying to actually blockade Venezuela. So given that, and, and the fact that this month, actually marks the anniversary of the attempted coup against the country with Juan Guaido being named interim president one year ago. And, you know, he's still not really president. So what are your thoughts on this kind of anniversary and how Venezuela has uh, fared under this uh, unrelenting, really, war? That's what it is. Economic sanctions are war. Well, the Wall Street Journal taking account of the one-year anniversary of the attempt to install Mr. Guaido in the leadership in Caracas, uh, did a survey and did an analysis trying to figure out why this attempt failed. And, of course, they pointed to the usual suspects. They said that Cuba and its intelligence agencies and its security assistance to uh, Mr. Maduro has been essential. Uh, They did not mention the role of Mexico, which has refused to go along with the anti-Maduro scheme. They could have mentioned Argentina with the new government there that has embraced Evo Morales, now in exile in Buenos Aires after being pushed out of Bolivia. The new Argentine government also has extended solidarity uh, to Maduro and Caracas. And they didn't mention uh, Caracom either, the Caribbean community. Uh, which, too, has refused to go along with Washington's schemes. Now, they did mention Russia. They got a significant portion of attention in terms of explaining, according to the Wall Street Journal, why Maduro remains in power, because according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, Russia has been marketing Venezuelan oil, which is under sanctions by the United States of America, and thereby turning over the revenue uh, to the Maduro regime, The Wall Street Journal also singled out India, uh, which has been buying Venezuela oil, according to the Wall Street Journal. And they also singled out Turkey. Uh, Recall that uh, President Erdogan of Turkey and President Maduro of Venezuela have exchanged visits. I should also say that what this failure to overthrow the Maduro regime reveals as well, once again, is the debility and the weaknesses of certain European countries, 
Uh, that is to say that many European countries have been encouraged to go along with Washington's scheme of Britain in the first place. And I think that this points out that with Britain leaving the European Union, the likelihood is that Britain will become a kind of vassal state for Washington and also a kind of wedge to be used against remaining European Union states, particularly France, which oftentimes feels the need not to go along altogether with the U.S. line. Well, we'll certainly keep a watch on that. There's so many interlocking issues We haven't even really talked about Iraq and Iran, but they all seem to go back to this, the latest stage of the like post-colonial state, the post-colonial world that we're in right now and people's, you know, fervent desire and fight to wrest themselves from the vestiges of that uh, uh, colonial control and that whole era. So I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. I don't know if it's too late to say Happy New Year, but I haven't had a chance to say that for 2020. So uh, I'll talk to you soon. I hope so. Okay. What? 1960 what? 1960 who? 1960 what? 19... Hey! The Motor City is burning! 1960 what? 1960 who? 1960 what? 
Chantel James attended the January 25th rally and filed this report. As millions of people in Iraq marched to demand an end to U.S. occupation last week, Inter-Coalition, in partnership with Code Pink, Popular Resistance, and more than 15 other organizations, mobilized protests to show solidarity in more than 202 cities across the U.S. and around the world. D.C.'s event, building on the momentum of growing anti-war movements, took place in front of the White House on Saturday, the 25th of January. The crowd of hundreds called for the U.S. to withdraw its military presence from Iraq and for there to be no aggression against Iran, including sanctions. Speakers cautioned against the sentiment that the threat of war is over and stressed the necessity of continuing to organize against imperialism in these times. Answer Coalition's Sean Blackman and Medea Benjamin of Code Pink emceed the rally, where local and national organizers spoke. Afterward, the massive collective marched through the streets of D.C. to George Washington University, where Students Against Imperialism hosted a teach-in and planning session for the future of anti-war organizing. Reverend Graylin Hagler of the Poor People's Campaign roused the crowd giving historical context for the movement against wars of U.S. imperialism across the globe as it continues to this day. No more Alright, it's important to be here even though we stand on this soggy ground in front of this house of ill repute. It's uh, important that we be here to make our voices known. Because one thing I think about Brian and Medea, what was it, 16 years ago, maybe a little long, we were marching to try to prevent uh, a war in Iraq. Because we knew exactly what was going to happen. But basically we went there to war anyway on a whole bunch of false pretense lies that were told to the American public and therefore we ended up dismantling a country. Understand, we dismantled the country because there is no government that exists in Iraq, basically the proxies of those in the United States. That's the same thing they want in Iran, is a proxy government of the United States. And we will not stand for that. We stand in solidarity with the Iranian people. We stand against the sanctions, and we stand for the U.S. military to get the hell out of Iraq. Now, one thing that we still have to lift up continually is this idea of racism, militarism, and poverty. It is all linked together. It was said by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in the 60s. It still holds true today. And he also warned us that unless we could march to do an end to Vietnam, we're going to be out in the street after one war after another, after one American adventurism after another. Well, here we are today in 2020, still speaking out against war. Because one thing that we do understand is that war has nothing to do with protecting people in the United States. War has nothing to do with freedom, even though they like to throw that around and nobody can define what those freedoms are. War has to do with making a few people rich at the expense of everybody else. 
And there is a racism that exists when we talk about U.S. warfare. Warfare in countries that are not European. Warfare in Bolivia. Warfare in Venezuela. Warfare against the black and brown community here at home. Warfare against those south of the border. There is a racist white supremacist quality to all of this and let's not be fooled and let's not go down the road and think that it's something that somehow is noble. There's nothing noble about the conquest and enslavement of people. is used to push forth U.S. economic and political policy. Not the policies of me and you, but the policies of all those corporations that seek to steal resources out of Africa, out of Asia, all over the world. It's about thievery, sisters and brothers. We need to call it for what it is. And there's also a dynamic that I must talk to talk about. There has been a battle of religious voices in this country. Religious voices, those on the left, who've been do-gooders, but did not see themselves as a political entity, and those on the right, who could care less about morality, they were just engaged in political expediency to advance the cause of imperialism and racism in this country and in the world. That's why one group on the religious right can stand up and justify Israel, can stand up and justify our intervention all around the world, and somehow we base it in religious principle. Well, there are no religious principles when it comes to war and hatred and violence against human beings anywhere in the world. That's why we have to stand up, because this country has to be taught a lesson about itself. That it was a country that was built upon violence and we aim for the violence to stop the day. It was a country that was built upon the eradication of native populations from the American soil. We aim for it to stop the day. It is a country that used guns and weapons in which to enslave populations and remove people from the land. We aim to stop it today. To stand up and be the people of conscience and be militant about who we are and demand peace and justice in our time. No war and no sanctions in Iran. No war and no sanctions in Iraq. In fact, get the hell out of Iraq. Get your hands off of Bolivia and Venezuela. Let us stand up and be the people of justice and conscience. God bless you. These organizations will continue to organize with a strong voice against war, and you can be a part of it. Global Days of Protest to commemorate the 17th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq will be organized by Answer Coalition and Partners March 19th through 21st this year. From the White House, this is Chantal James. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I was also on hand at the January 25th rally, and I spoke to Carl Dix, a co-convener of Refuse Fascism, which calls for the immediate ouster of Trump and Pence, and which was an organizer of Wednesday's swarm of hundreds inside the Hart Senate office building. I spoke to him about impeachment, Trump's election campaign, and his group's counter-protest at the far-right gun rally 
held in Richmond, Virginia, on the birthday holiday of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I was out here today because, look, the assassination of the Iranian General Qasim Soleimani was a war crime. That's all you can say about it. They targeted an official in a sovereign government while he was visiting another country, another sovereign country. That is a war crime. International law is real clear on that. You know, unless you're involved in a war, you can't do that. And they did it and bragged about it. And we have to say no, because this is dragging the world closer to war. I mean, the bombs haven't started flying yet, but we are right up against that. And see, we have to see this in relation to the criminal that's in the White House. Because this is a man who has said, I've got nuclear weapons, why can't I use them? Think of what that could mean. And put this together with all his other crimes. And right now, because this is a week that was bookended by white supremacist thugs armed to the teeth descending on Richmond on Martin Luther King Day to spew their white supremacy and, and hatred of black people, of brown people, and to threaten civil war if they don't get their way. Because they're down there talking about boogalooing. And they're not talking about dancing. This is a white supremacist term for sparking a race war in this country. You know, I wanted to ask you about that because I saw that I think you all posted like a, a live stream. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but your group actually went down there, refused fascism, went down there. So tell us, because a lot of it was covered as a gun rights rally and it was kind of, since nothing happened, it didn't get a lot of media play. But tell us what happened from your perspective because you were there on the ground. Yeah, look, what happened was this was a gun rights rally like the Klan burning a cross is about the right to light a match. The essence of this was the white supremacy that was being promoted. And these people delivered a message of intimidation. And I'm also a part of the National Get Organized for an Actual Revolution Tour. And 10 of us went down to confront this because we felt it would be very bad if they were able to deliver this message of intimidation and no one stood up against it. And unfortunately, that was about the scene because we were the only counter-protest. We went right in the middle of it. We kind of hid our banners under our coat, <laughs> pulled out our banners saying, Trump, Pence out now, no white supremacy, a better world is possible, revolution, nothing less. And we did it in the midst of howling mobs because that's what it was. These people were saying they're not going to comply with gun control legislation. That was the main chant. And the second main chant was for Trump. And this is the thing that people have to get. And then the other end of that bookend was when all those Christian fascists came into town yesterday for the so-called March for Life, which is actually a march to take the right to choose to have an abortion from women and birth control because they've come out the bag now. They used to keep the birth control part hidden. They are now openly saying that they want to stop not only the right to have an abortion, but also access to birth control because as they read the Bible, that is against God's wishes. Now me, I don't go by anybody's thinking of what God's wishes are. I go by what humanity needs and women need to have that right. 
Women need to control their own bodies. And the Trump-Pence regime is unleashing white supremacy on Monday, attacking women's rights on Friday, all of it coming together with a, a, as part of a fascist agenda that must be stopped. That's why we form the Out Now movement. I'm a revolutionary. I want to get rid of this capitalist imperialist system. And I would have talked about that if I spoke at this rally because that's the source of the threat of war and the ongoing wars. But because I'm a revolutionary, I see the need to drive this regime out because your chances for any progressive future, whether you agree with me on revolution or not, if you just want to advance some progressive issues like cl you know, the climate protection, like women's rights, like LGBTQ rights, it will not happen if this regime is, able, is allowed to consolidate its power. And it's important right now to be out here raising this question because the sucker's on trial. Now, the Republicans got it set up and rigged to let him off, but what if hundreds and thousands of people started flocking the Senate building? Yeah, what if the same was happening around the country? Yeah, but the Democrats have not put in the right charges to get people galvanized. So, no, you know, right for the past that. year, you're we've right been about talking that. about the border. We've been talking about the children killed on the border. They just cut people off of food stamps, you know, trying to cut people's health care. The assault on the environment, not just around climate change, but they just yeah, released right. a rule this week to, like, pollute our water, our drinking water. Mm -hmm. So the things that people have been galvanized about for the past year or for the past three years you know when people came out about the muslim ban all that none of that's not oh the emoluments you know he's making money on his hotel <laughs> i mean all no, the stuff right. that people could have gotten galvanized about the democrats haven't put those things in it so you say the republicans have it rigged but it seems like the democrats have it rigged the democrats too are opposing Trump, but they want to keep it on a narrow basis because they both represent the same capitalist imperialist system. The Democrats just have a different way to keep it in effect than Trump. And they also understand now that they are coming under attack by Trump. This whole thing on Biden and his son, they're getting the point, oh, he might come after us. Well, People shouldn't come out in the street behind the Democrats and because the Democrats don't serve our interests. But it is in our interest to drive this regime out. And we can break through the narrow terms that the Democrats have it on by bringing these issues forward. And we can break through the rigging that the Republicans are bringing down. It's not an easy thing to do. But think about it if thousands of people were out this week outside the Senate, if the numbers started to grow, if it was happening around the country. And see, that is what happened in Puerto Rico. That's what happened in Korea. Now, in this country, two things stand in the way of that. One is that Americans are used to working through the channels of the system, and they don't understand, even when they get outside them, they don't understand that their work outside the channels is what changed things. Because they talk about the civil rights legislation that Lyndon Johnson passed. And then look, Lyndon Johnson was a Southern cracker whose whole career had been based on racism. Why did he pass civil rights legislation? Because there were a whole lot of black people out in the streets and a lot of other people joined them. Well, I, I appreciate that you've been an organizer for decades <laughs> and I appreciate your continued enthusiasm and optimism. I guess I don't see 
it seems like the people are trying to vote him out as opposed to like thinking that this process yes, with are. the Republicans controlling the Senate is actually going to, to move. But I appreciate the fact that you're not cynical. Let me just raise one thing, yeah. and it's not yeah. just that I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. I'm being scientific. Okay. No, let's look at it. Because you work relying, if people, to people who are relying on the elections, I say think about this. He's working to rig the elections. Right, that's right. <laughs> In state after state, the Republicans are scrubbing hundreds of thousands of people. Off no, the that's voting that, that's that's for sure. People who would be more likely to vote against Trump and the Republicans. Right. So if you're going for the elections, you got to recognize they're rigging that too. You know, and, and then the other question becomes: even if he loses outright, electoral college and the popular vote, what will make him leave? Because he's already told you. If I lose an election, it must have been rigged, so I won't respect it. Mm. Now, what Mm. if he does that? What will make him leave? Mm. And the only thing that we can rely on is us. And I don't want us to get in a situation where he's lost the election, he refuses to leave, he calls out his white supremacist thugs Mm. who are armed to the teeth, he calls out the Christian fascists who are like, he's our best chance Mm. to slam women back into the dark ages. You wait till you get to that situation and it's tighter. So we got to start mobilizing now, even to be in position to deal with that when it comes down. Okay. Let me get in one more thing. We are mobilizing on this and we're going to be out here at the Capitol every day that Trump's on trial. People need to check out the website refusefascism.org on all the plans. Refusefascism.org. Okay. All right, so thank you. All right, well, uh, thank you. I've been speaking to Carl Dix of Refuse Fascism. Why the ambulance? Why the man body still the right man there? Supposed to be Why the damn ambulance? I cannot live seeing the suffering of our people here or anywhere in the world and be silent. Yes, sir. I know that I cannot. Along. In fact, I would rather be dead right now than to see you in the condition that you're in in a time like this. Mama, I'm paranoid from the police guys. Cause the police man might take my life. What's freedom of speech without my rights? When I, I can't, I can't, I can't breathe. How many more sons, how many must die? How many must march with a protest sign? They take my life, take my life, I was unarmed. On CNN every day, it's the same song. Oh no, they This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. 
Well, Corporal Michael A. Owen Jr. of the Prince George's County, Maryland Police Department remains in jail without bail for the Monday night shooting death of William Green, a 43-year-old father of two from Southeast Washington, D.C. According to police, Owen shot Green seven times while Green was sitting in the front seat of a patrol car with his hands tied behind his back. I spoke to April Goggins, core organizer for Black Lives Matter D.C., about the case, the call for community control of police, and community-led safety. It's murder. It's, it's cold-blooded murder. A lot of times we sit back and we try to figure out, you know, what makes the difference between murders by police, deaths in custody, you know, which, especially for the DMV area, you know, when they do get national attention. And I think it's because people are still more willing to, uh, you know, point out something where they can see that the person who was killed, they did nothing, right? And I think that's one of the ways that allows these things to happen again. Because the other thing that we know is that this is this officer's third shooting and the second fatal one. Now, in in the world outside of a police department, there's never a time that one of us could shoot somebody three times too fatal um, where that would have ever gotten, you know, that far. We'd be locked up. <laughs> away from guns. And I think that while we make sure to to mourn for William, because I think also we can get very desensitized to it because it happens a lot, it's really important to really think and sit with how that feels. And I think at the same time, we then owe a redoubling of our efforts and our commitment to not just, you know, pick out this one police officer, but to really deepen our understanding of what policing is. What is the what are the mechanisms, the tactics that allow these things to happen and that place these officers and police departments outside of the same law that they, you know, swear to uphold. Because it's too easy for us to say it was this just this officer. But there's an entire system of policing that we need to be conscious of because then you start to look at what it is that people and elected officials in Prince George's County are now saying they want to do as a response. And so there's a few things. And the first is that, you know, they're asked, you know, they ask us what we think about body cameras and coming from DC body cameras, you know, they didn't make any kind of change in the use of force, but on the other hand have been incredibly helpful for defense attorneys against police officers. Um, and in letting, you know, black folks who are, who generally would have just been our, our word against others to have, you know, a different look at what actually happened. And then the other thing is, you know, people calling for Hank Swinsky, the police chief to step down. I mean, and that's akin to people, you know, I'd love to see Peter Newsom gone, but I think we have to look deeper and say, it'll just be another police chief that it's not, I mean, there are some that are, you know, more vicious or whatever than others. But they're still holding a position, and it's the the position that legitimizes the police department, right? So, and for us, we are, you know, our campaign for this year is we keep us safe. Um, that that once you do that deep dive into what policing is, how it started, the social control, the property over people, when you really start looking all, at all of that, you have to say, well, I mean, there's not a way that we can continue to justify policing to be the answer for anything. Um, but we all need to be safe and we all deserve to be safe. And we have to break down this like learned behavior that somehow somebody else has to keep us safe.
But that when it really comes down to, we have to keep ourselves and each other safe. And that looks like building communities and systems and ways of being with each other that are not police involved. That means looking at different ways of like, what does it look for to live in an accountable community versus just holding people accountable? What does it look like when you believe that people aren't disposable and are worthy of redemption? Because even, you know, with police, we started our cop watch because, you know, in these, these are just like highlights and examples of why um, cop watch and, and the things that we do around exposing misconduct are a sort of community defense right? Like, mm-hmm. we are defending our community from that level of either terror or violence. Um, but it's a part of us keeping us safe. So April, I know I've asked this before, but I had a caller once uh, on a radio show, uh, talk about how she believes there should be no traffic stops, because all these shootings and killings occur, so many of them occur when during a routine traffic stop. And before you know it, the person is d- dead. And it was her her idea that perhaps we should just have a, a summons. You know, you if you run a red light or you're going too fast or whatever, that, you know, the camera can, you know, take your plate and you can get a summons and you can go in and see about your case as opposed to being stopped by the police carrying a gun and... So many of these altercations lead to death. What do you think about that? And I and I think that's, you know, and I think that's also a really another really important reason why we absolutely have to keep repointing ourselves back into the fact that this is a system. Because that actually just creates another avenue of criminalization, right? Because then it says you have to then appear um, what are then they have to put in some kind of process of mailing it to you? Where do you live? How do they look that up? So is that another level of surveillance that they need to, which cameras are they going to use? There's more penalties than there's got to be no, new ways to, to have fines. Um, when the fact of the matter is, like, what is happening at those stops? And why are people being stopped? Like, I think we're still talking about some pre-contextual stops where there's like, not actually a reason, but maybe a suspicion, or it could be anything. Mm-hmm. I've gotten pulled over because I gave a cop a, a, ba- a dirty look. Mm-hmm. That again, we have to start thinking about like, what is it that we want police to do? And can they actually do that thing? Are they doing that thing? So a traffic mm-hmm. violation in a community that was keeping itself safe, if somebody was, you know, causing harm or, you know, property destruction, then it would be on the community to intervene to stop the immediate violence to, like, is this person having a medical, you know, you know, a medical uh, emergency? If not, like, what happened? Why did it happen? Who is, who's been affected? And then immediately, how do we, how does accountability work in a way that's, like, transformative? There's nothing in law enforcement that gives you an incentive for taking accountability, right? Because you're, everything is about don't say anything, you know, don't, everything is about not being guilty. And part of that is because the punishments never actually fit, quote unquote, the crime. But, you know, it's in, it ends up being really important to say, like, how do you change long-term behavior? And I think that's the same for communities as well as it is for police, right? And, and so it has to do with 
that system, like that we can try to change how we interact with the system, the system mm-hmm. will, will continue to be the system. And so the underlying like foundation will always be that. It will just create new ways to do what it always does. It will always, the system always, it's kind of like the matrix. It, all, it always will then form or, or change in a way to still do what it does, um, even if conditions change. So why do you think that in this case, compared to so many cases, we actually have not only the officer arrested but charged with murder? I mean, he's black. it doesn't happen all the time. Huh? Yeah, I definitely think him being black has something to do with it. I think we can't shy away from the fact that, like, we also protested a few months ago from an officer, PG County officer, who arrested and broke DeMonte's back in a traffic stop, um, and we didn't, it, they still haven't released that officer's name and badge number, and he's still out there, <laughs> but, you know, as soon as this happened, they locked the black cop up, and, and, it's, and it's not to say that he shouldn't be held accountable, it's that even in the system, the system still criminalizes black cops <laughs> differently than it does white ones. Um, wow. So, mm-hmm. I, and and to me, you know, that's another, like, legitimizing the system like you chose to be a police officer and somehow thought that doing that was was going to make the system of policing different because you were there and that's kind of like the same argument with like people are always like but but there are some good cops right april and i'm like no there aren't good cops people get mad but the second part of that is because there are good people my brother always says there are good people who become cops but once you're a cop, you're in a system that is fundamentally bad. Like you are joining something that's bad and you're being indoctrinating and you legitimize it because you show up to work every day. So what are the next steps? What will happen going forward to bring justice in this case? Right. So um, right now, you know, we've, we've been in, um, some of my comrades have been in touch with the family. Um, and so we're trying to um, support them in raising money for the funeral because obviously you know the state is not going to pay for its murder and so you know that's going on I think the victim the person that he shot and killed before that it looks like they may be reopening that case and that family also reached out to us and so I think as things unfold I don't really know what will happen. I mean, in these cases, it's really important for us to, like, follow the family's lead on the specific case. Um, But when it comes to, like, the larger issues and things around the police department and policing, that, you know, that continues. I think that people are starting, you know, people always around the situation, always kind of their eyes are opened a little bit more, and they tend to, um, you know, really want to, learn more and do more um, and get more involved. And so I think, I think that's probably where a lot of our energy will go. I mean, cause I think it's, if we haven't learned anything, it's that this is a marathon. Like it's, it's there's a, we have to be on the long game about um, exposing these things, supporting families. Cause this, this pain and this loss that goes on for, it doesn't go away. And we build communities that can support each other after these things um, because it's not going to stop is one thing that we know, um, but that we build for the long game, which is how do we disentangle our communities from state criminalization and um, incarceration and then ultimately death at the hands of police. 
And that was April Goggins, core organizer for Black Lives Matter DC. And that will do it for today's show. There's so much happening. The Iowa caucus, the first presidential primary, is Monday, February 3rd. The African People's Socialist Party is holding a plenary conference February 1st through February 3rd at the Uhuru House in St. Petersburg, Florida. Go to APSPplenary.org for more information. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. The music we played this hour included The Crossroads, I Can't Breathe, featuring Chaz French and Gregory Porter, 1960-what? Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.